Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It's okay to look in the table of contents if you need to. This isn't a very popular book, probably you could say, but if you know any verse or any passage from this book, it might be the one that we're looking at this morning. Chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. But Father, we would ask that you would calm our hearts, focus our hearts upon you. In these next few moments, help us to stand in awe, in appreciation, to take in this love that surpasses knowledge. We need divine help to do that. Your love is so great for your people. Help us to believe these things to be true, not just give verbal assent to them, and that you would change our hearts, that we would respond in gratitude and love as a result. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, two things I love to do, if you know me at all, are reading, and I love to play the guitar. Uh, Maybe you didn't know that second one about me. But whenever I get a chance, whenever I have spare time, which is very rare these days, uh, I enjoy doing those two activities. And when it comes to those two things, nobody has to force me to think about doing them. I find time to do them. I look forward to those times. No one has to force me. It's not work. It's pleasure. And uh, think for a moment for you, what do you enjoy doing? What do you love to do? could be a hobby of uh, playing golf, playing some other sport, watching sports, uh, sewing, cooking. Maybe you like to build stuff. You would be on the opposite end of the spectrum of me, but if you enjoy building things, uh, maybe that's relaxing. Maybe that's something you enjoy, you would love to do. No one has to twist our arm to do things we enjoy. They come naturally to us. We look forward to engaging in those activities. Now think for a moment about our God. The same is true of Him, of course, on a whole other level as Creator. He always does what He enjoys. He always does as He pleases, freely, according to His good pleasure. You see, no one can twist His arm to get him to do something that he doesn't already want to do. That's a profound truth if you think about the implications. But in light of our text this morning, what is it that God enjoys doing? The answer is very simple. You'll see point one on your outline. God enjoys saving sinners. Perhaps that surprises you. Maybe that wouldn't be your first answer that comes to your mind when you think about what God enjoys. 
But it's very clear from our text this morning that he actually takes pleasure in saving a people for himself. Now to get a better understanding of this verse, we need to get our bearings a little bit about the context of a book like Zephaniah. If you know anything about the book, it's largely taken up with the concept of the day of the Lord. That's a day when God comes, and he comes to judge, and he comes to save. Sort of two sides of the same coin in this event. And the practical application that Zephaniah gives back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that the people need to repent. The people need to seek the Lord before this day comes. As it says, so they might be hidden on the day of the Lord. Hidden from his judgment and be saved. Now the more immediate context of Zephaniah, who is prophesying in and around the time of Josiah, would be the Babylonian invasion and the impending exile. This was the more immediate historical fulfillment of this day. However, as often as the case in the prophets, they also speak of a more ultimate fulfillment of this day, where God would judge all the nations for their sins, yet save a remnant people for himself and experience his salvation. Now, in verse 17, you won't be surprised. This is the salvation side of this coin, this day. And what does it include? Let's look for a moment. First of all, it includes the idea that God will be near to his people. He will be in their midst as a mighty savior. Now, in light of what we just celebrated, uh, the incarnation of Christ and all the prophecies in the Old Testament about him, it's not surprising that you'll find the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, described in these very ways. He is God coming to be with us in our midst. And he is a mighty Savior. He is a mighty God. And his name is called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, God's love is being described in this verse in very lofty, poetic ways. Think about it for a moment. It says that he will quiet you by his love. Most scholars, or many scholars, believe what's being conveyed here is more the idea of what's true of God's feeling of love for his people. Not necessarily a transference of quietness to them, but that God is quietly contemplating and is contented with his love for his people. So God is quiet in his love, but then on the other side of the spectrum, it says he will also exalt over them with loud singing. Putting these two ideas together, we get this. From the depths of inward contemplation to the heights of outward expression, God loves us. It's a poetic way of saying that any way that love can truly and properly be expressed from the quiet to the loud exuberance toward another. God 
does towards us. That's how he loves us. Across the spectrum. Now, though this text is perhaps striking to you in its description of God's love, that he would love us in this way, it's not the only place that we find this kind of rejoicing over his people. Consider the following passages. Isaiah 62, verse 5. And this is using the marriage analogy, the imagery of a bridegroom and a bride. And it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. In Jeremiah chapter 32, this is in the context of new covenant promises. And if you are believing in Christ alone for your eternal life today, you are a participant in these promises. Listen to what God says. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. God's saying this about his people. It reminds me of a, a great quote from uh, Puritan Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God. He's, in this quote, he is talking of the goodness of God, which would include his love for his people. And he says, God is most delighted when he is most diffusive. What he's saying is, God is most delighted when he's most giving to the objects of his love, his people. And he's no more giving to us than when he is saving us. The New Testament also pictures God as a rejoicing God over his people. In Luke chapter 15, we find three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and probably the most familiar with, to you, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And each of these three parables, the common refrain is that there is great rejoicing in heaven over finding that which is lost. Implied that God himself rejoices in saving people. You see, it was the scribes, and if you look in the context of Luke 15, it was the scribes and the Pharisees who grumbled that Jesus received and ate with sinners. That troubled them, not God, not Christ. God, in his love, set the wheels of blessing in motion before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 tells us, setting his love upon us, and in a remarkable verse in John 17, 23, describes this love as being the same love that the Father has for the Son. Can you imagine? Now this truth naturally, if you're like me, naturally causes you to almost recoil. Like, wow, that, that sounds really good. But... That's not for me. I don't deserve that. Almost in disbelief, that sounds too good to be true. That's a nice thought. But you don't know me. That brings us to our second point in the outline. You see, God enjoys saving sinners 
Really? Sinners? If you look at the rest of the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17, sticks out like a brilliant diamond laid out by a jeweler on a black cloth. You've seen them do that, if you've bought in jewelry at all. They'll lay it out on the black cloth so it shines more brightly, more brilliantly. And such is the case with the book of Zephaniah. The situation is dark. Almost 80% of the book is taken up with talk of judgment for sin. Not just the sin of the nations, the sin of God's people. So let's look for a moment, just take a survey. Who are the recipients of a love like this in chapter 3, verse 17? Those who swear allegiance to God but follow after idols. Chapter 1, verse 5. Who perhaps make appearances to humor God by showing up or humor others pretending to come to him, but whose hearts are far from him. It's those also in chapter 1 who are described as those who turn back from God, turn back from following him, and do not seek him or inquire of him. We might call that prayerlessness. There are also a people who are spiritually complacent, it says, and are presumptuous, who think that God is not able to judge them, or he won't bring his judgment, nor will he be able to help us with our daily needs. In other words, this is a way of saying that You know, God is a nice idea, but practically irrelevant to my daily life. They're also described in chapter 2 and 3 as those who are rebellious and immoral and do not not listen to the voice of God. You know, in their day it would have been, you know, previous revelation and the the voice of the contemporary prophet, but in our day it would be... uh, We don't listen to his word. And there's an amazing verse in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Just the the heights of arrogance and self-sufficiency in the face of God. Where it says that this exultant city, Jerusalem in context, says in her heart, I am and there is no one else. Now, who is entitled to say something like that? God says that. You see what they're doing? They are putting themselves in the place of God in their sense of self-sufficiency. And it goes on to say it's the people who know no shame, and when they are warned and instructed, they are all the more eager to make their deeds corrupt. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 3, there's no one who seeks after God. All go their own way and have become corrupt. This is not a pretty picture. And perhaps if you're like me, you hear some of these descriptions and you feel a little bit of a sting in your own heart as you realize that sometimes that's true of me. 
I do those things. I don't pray as I ought, as I'm called to. I don't listen to God on a regular basis in His Word. Sometimes I act as if He's practically irrelevant to my life. Would you save a people like that? Let alone rejoice over them with loud singing? Consider the very same truth being spoken of in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when it says that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or as it says later, that Christ died for the ungodly. Not those who were spiritually strong or had it all together. When our kids were younger, one of the things that we did... uh, was to purchase a swing set for them online. And when it finally arrived at our house in multiple boxes, we set out to put it together with just a few hours of daylight left. Isn't that funny how we always seem to start projects like that uh, too late in the day? Well, two hours later, we had successfully separated all the pieces and parts. And we realized in the process we didn't have even the right tools to put the thing together. And all I could think of in that moment was I didn't know what I was getting myself into. If I would have known that it was going to be this much trouble, I wouldn't have even started it. I would have had somebody else do it for me. Have you ever thought if God knew what he was getting into with me and all my sin and all my weaknesses, he wouldn't have bothered. Have you ever thought that about yourself before a holy God? Well, let me encourage you in light of what he has revealed in his word. God knew exactly what he was getting into with you and with me in saving us from our sin. And to add to that, he's all in. He does as he pleases. No one forced his hand against his will to save you. He wanted to save you. Think about that. what that says about our great God. You know, this, the very simple truth we're looking at in this verse is that God loves you. He loves his people. You can't get any more basic than that. That's the first thing, one of the first truths we share with our children in Sunday school. Yet we struggle our whole lives as adults to embrace that truth. Why is that? Well, let's consider some common ways in which we are reluctant to embrace the love of God. Point three in your outline, common objections to this truth. You might say, this sounds good, but I'm too sinful. I'm too sinful to be loved 
like this. For this to be true of me, there's too much guilt in my life. Look at verse 15 of our, right before our verse. The Lord has taken away his judgments from you. And of course, he ultimately does that in the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and his work. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. Notice that God's love does not tolerate or disregard our sin, but decisively deals with it. And it doesn't leave us wondering if our sin will hinder this love in the future or destroy the relationship that God has established. He has literally made it so that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Since he is for us in Christ, who can prevent it? Who will oppose God in doing as he pleases? Remember also that God is mighty to save. First part of verse 17. Christ is a sufficient Savior to save even the chief of sinners. And I don't know how you feel this morning. Maybe you feel like the chief of sinners. Well, Christ is sufficient for you. Perhaps you felt like Peter. If you remember when he was standing next to Jesus and he caught the great catch of fish and he realized he was in the presence of God himself. What was his response? Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like Peter. But Christ is saying to us, fear not. Now he tells Peter he'll make him a fisher of men. But fear not, come to me for forgiveness. Follow me. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Maybe you're saying to yourself when you hear about this mighty, wonderful, exuberant love of God, maybe you say, you don't know my past. I have a shameful past. In fact, too shameful for God to rejoice over me. And perhaps maybe that's come to the surface for some of you over the Christmas holiday as you spent time with family where there's great hurt. Maybe done to you or you done to others. And you're tempted to think, I'm just too shameful. Well, consider verse 19 in chapter 3. I will change their shame into praise. The words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, verse 7. Instead of your shame, speaking of his, his redeemed remnant, 
God says, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice. We might also consider Christ and his work on our behalf. That Christ took our curse and our shame upon himself on the cross. And that in him, God promises that we will not be put to shame. That's the very language of Scripture in speaking of our salvation. And let me add this truth. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to be your Savior. He is not ashamed to be your Savior. He's not ashamed to call you His brother. And God is not ashamed to be called our God when we believe in His Son. Perhaps you're thinking this way when you hear about this amazing love of God. You know, I can't really accept that until I feel I deserve it. That's a lie from the enemy. That's not the gospel. That's contrary to the gospel of grace. It makes me think of the line from the the old hymn that we sang a number of weeks ago, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. Do you you remember the line in there that says, If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Beware of the false humility lurking behind this objection to the love of God. A false humility that says, I'll, I'll embrace that once I get myself together and make myself presentable to God. That's a workspace mentality. None of us are good enough. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can ascend his holy hill. Also, beware of the false humility that that only says, okay, I'm a sinner. Look at how sinful I am. As if we're humbling ourselves by merely looking inward. That's deceptive. That can become a false humility. Now, surely the gospel humbles us. It exposes our sin, and it's right to acknowledge that. But that's not the full gospel. The full gospel says, look at the great Savior who saves me from all of my sin. Looks to him. In other words, it's not more godly or humble to think more about our sin than our Savior. Maybe we'll consider one more objection you could perhaps add to this list, as there are many ways that we are tempted to think wrongly about the love of God. But the last one I'll mention is, perhaps you think to yourself, you know, I, I see that Jesus Christ, I see that he in the Gospels is a kind man. He's a loving man. He's an example of all of those things. But I'm not so sure about the Father. In other words, sometimes we can get the notion in our minds that 
boy, if it weren't for Jesus holding the Father back, the Father would really rather destroy me in judgment for my sin. Listen to the words of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ has made the heart of the Father known. John chapter 1. You see, the Father's loving intention to save us was not caused by the work of Christ. Rather, the work of Christ was directed by the Father's loving intention to begin with from all eternity. They are on the same page in loving sinners. Makes me think of the Puritan John Owen in his book, Communion with God. He says, speaking of the love of the Father in particular and how hard it is to take that in as sinners. And he says, you can no more trouble or burden him, the Father, than by your own unkindness in not believing it. It's a sin not to believe it. He said it. Does he lie? Of course not. You see, in all of these objections that we've considered, the enemy is prowling around. And whispering in our ear, did God really say that? Did God say he, he loves you that much? That can't be. Look at you. That can't be. We need to know what God has said. And I'm afraid, for some of us, we don't know what he has said well enough to know whether he said it or not. And we, and we buy into the lies, the lies of the enemy. So if Scripture provides a clear answer to these objections, what's the proper response to his love? Notice the language of verse 17 almost mirrors the language of verse 14 in the text, where God's people, his saved remnant, is called to sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult with all your heart because God has saved them from their sin. You see, God's people are called to respond in a, in a way that's very similar to the way that God expresses his love in verse 17. They correspond to one another. In Isaiah 61, it says that I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. In the context there, there again, the bridegroom and the bride imagery comes out in terms of this mutual expression of love. When Laura and I dated long distance, I was living in Ohio at the time, and she was here in Columbia. We couldn't wait to get married, as you can imagine, uh, where we could finally spend extended time together. 
without interruption. Can you imagine if, if at the wedding reception, I came up to her and said, can you believe it? We're finally able to be together. Isn't this wonderful? And her response is to, to hold up the marriage certificate and say, yes, according to this paper, this document, you are correct. I guess we must be together legally now. And by the way, why don't you do your thing and I'll do mine and maybe we can catch up over the holidays. That would be totally inappropriate in a marriage context. Something would be seriously dysfunctional about that situation. There's something dysfunctional about being a child of God and not rejoicing in His love. You see, it reminds us again of this important biblical reality that the communion between Christ and His bride is one of mutual affection. And if we're not rejoicing over the love of God as we're called to in verse 14 in light of what He has done for us, perhaps we're not embracing the truth of verse 17. Maybe we really don't have a clue about what verse 17 is telling us. God has clearly made His intentions clear to His people. The question is the feeling mutual. Is the feeling mutual on our end? So we need to ask ourselves some questions as we reflect on this. What hinders your rejoicing in God's love? Was it one of those objections that we talked about? Maybe it's something else. What hinders your rejoicing? And, and more, maybe more importantly, asking the follow-up question, what does Scripture say about those hindrances? If you remember, when we were going through those objections, we were responding with scriptural truth to get our bearings of what is really the case. And secondly, how, how would embracing this truth change your life? Change your perspective. Change your motives for why you do what you do. For how you relate to God and how you relate to others. Now, if you remember, if you've been here a while, you'll remember that the verse of the year for 2015 was 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So we come full circle on this last Sunday of 2015. Have you believed this truth? Have you committed it to memory, but it's made no practical difference in your life? Have you experienced this love? Now, in light of what we looked at this morning, what is not in question is God's love for his people. It's not in question. He does as he pleases. God enjoys saving sinners like us. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we stand in awe of your grace, your mercy. This is just one of many wonderful passages in your word that speak of your great love. Help us to respond appropriately. Help us to take it in, to accept it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to him alone for worthiness. For we are not worthy in and of ourselves. Help it to change our lives, our perspectives. And that we would even pray as Paul prayed for divine enablement to grasp, to comprehend this love that surpasses knowledge. May we be changed by it, we pray. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.